Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, and as ever, I'm your podcast host. We are in a little bit of a hiatus right now, coming back early next year with our new full season. But in the meantime, if you are missing uh, the Final Girls horror coverage, you can find so much more of that over on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the final girls you'll find in-depth review of new releases deep dive conversations and generally just bonus goodness so if you're willing to support or you want to gift it to someone in your life who has a penchant for horror films you know where to go but for now i'm extremely thrilled to drop this bonus episode celebrating the newly released film Nanny, which is now available on Amazon Prime to stream. And I sat down with Nanny's writer-director, Niki Atujusu, and her leading lady, Anna Diop, to talk about the making of the film. They were here when Nanny premiered at the London Film Festival back in October, and Within one day, I had the absolute privilege of speaking to the both of them. And without exaggerating, it's both of these interviews are probably some of my favorite conversations I've had this year. Now, we don't fully go into spoilers. We don't reveal anything that actually happens in the film, but we discuss the film broadly in case that's a deterrent for you. Uh, And if it is, I do encourage you to find and watch the film on Amazon Prime It is glorious. It's one of the most beautifully shot films I've seen all year. It seeps under your skin. And if that is not enough of a recommendation, I don't know what is. Check it out. And and after you watch it, there is a deep dive review of the film over on the Final Girls Patreon feed. And with all of that said, please enjoy my conversation with Nikki Atujusu and Anna Diop. Thank you so much for your film and for taking the time to speak to me. I've been Thank looking you, forward Anna. to this. I'm very um, happy to be here. I wanted to start, first of all, by asking you about your own personal relationship with horror films. You know, I love... I wouldn't say that I initially fell in love with horror outright. It was more so the darker genres in general. Suspense, suspense, thriller, psychological thriller, psychosexual thriller. Like, I just love the darker genres in general. And growing up, I grew up in a multi-generational household where we would just watch movies. Like, it would be me, my cousins, my uncle, my mom, my dad, my brother. And we would just watch kind of dark stuff as a family. Um I remember falling in love with the era of uh, Death Becomes Her, Basic Instinct, Single White yes. Female, but also, of course, like Freddy Krueger and the, the tradition, stereotypical American, like darker genre stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love women protagonists, La Femme Nikita, like mm-hmm. action international films with a woman in the lead who is killing people, you know? <laughs> I just I love that too. I'm interested in violent <laughs> femme fatales who are either running away from themselves or running away from something tangible. So with that in mind, um I wanted to ask you kind of about the origin story of Nanny. Yeah. Um definitely not a femme fatale, but yeah. what was the beginning of Nanny? Was it a particular scene? Was it a character? Um was it um this might sound weird, but was it a color? Because I'm, I'm going to no, ask you about color. No, it doesn't sound weird. I, I think that's a very intuitive question to ask. I, so the origin was loosely my mother's story. I'm first-gen American. My family's from Sierra Leone, West Africa. My mom did some domestic work growing up. When I was growing up, she did some domestic work. But she also owned a business and self-published two novels and had dreams of her own. And I was always fiercely protective of my mother. She's my best friend. So when she would go into people's homes to do this work in between jobs, I was always just really worried about her. Like, how was she being treated? Who were these people? And when you're a kid, you don't have 
the power or the agency to protect your own parents. Um, but I had this fierce protection over her. And so the, the germ of the idea started when I actually got to NYU. So I went straight from undergrad, went to NYU grad, took no breaks. I'm probably going to have a nervous breakdown in my fifties. Like I've been working nonstop, but I, I got to NYU and in that area, I don't know if you've been to the Tisch area, like Broadway, mm-hmm. West Fourth area, literally saw all these black and brown women pushing mostly white children in strollers. And I was like, oh my God, this is literally the visual manifestation of, you know, what I knew my mom and other women did. But like in New York, everything is on the surface. It's not hidden. And so I started to write the script just the outline, but I knew I didn't want it to be a straightforward drama. I wanted my protagonist to have sensuality and agency and power. And um, because of the baseline question that you asked me about the films that I was intrigued by. Um, But I also wanted to introduce fantasy and magic and folklore. So I started to tap into, it's hard to research folklore that is not centered you know, and with cult from cultures that are not centered. But luckily working in academia as a, as an assistant professor, I have access to the archive of JSTOR. And so I started doing all this research, pulling information about Anansi the Spider and Mami Wata. And those are the two figures I settled on because one, on a, on a spiritual level, they're two very prevalent forms of resistance for African diasporic people. Um, two, I love chaos agents. I love figures that say, let's burn this shit down. Even if I burn myself in the process, we need to start from scratch. I don't like when the oppressed are told how to be oppressed. You know, we live in a society that says nonviolence, civility, respectability. And that's really convenient when you're on the other side and you're being served. Um, but when you are the oppressed, you know, violence has to be fought with violence. So I've been curious about these figures. And Mami Wata is a cunning, uh, sensual, sexual, queer figure who also represents capitalism. So these were two figures I wanted to introduce. But and on a more superficial level, they I knew they would be fun to introduced in a live action form, like just visually, aesthetically, colorscape, soundscape. What do they sound like? What does Mami Wata sound like? What does a mermaid sound like? What do dolphins sound like? Like pulling from nature. And, you know, our budget was limited. limited. So Anansi, the spider, initially I conceived of him as this massive spider figure. Um, But you know, ultimately with the constraints, it made sense to lean into the naturalness of an actual spider. Mm -hmm. So those were the things that I was thinking about over the course of creating this project. And can you expand a little bit about the the stylistic choices that you were thinking about when building in uh, not just these two figures, but imagery that from your research through all of these choices that I could feel? Obviously, I'm not going to yeah. understand them intellectually, but yeah. I understood them emotionally. Kind of the sounds, the oppressiveness of the soundscape, mm-hmm. the consistent color schemes, like they all struck me as very, very specific choices mm-hmm. that were creating a palette of a folklore mixed with the immigrant experience that I've yeah. not seen and that I haven't seen in any other horror film of oh, this thank kind. You, so could you talk a little bit about kind of building essentially a visual language yeah. that has, you know, maybe it's it's my own ignorance, but it no. doesn't exist. You know, it's very rarely. It's, it's, I, my influences are very diverse in terms of mediums, but also film, like the filmmakers within film, Park Chanuk, you know, mm-hmm. Lynn Ramsey, Andrea Arnold, Michael Haneke, Usman Semben. So I have this really diverse refer- frame of reference for the types of filmmakers I admire. And what they have in common, even though they're all very different from one another, is that within their work, within one film, you might have five genres. So for instance, Park Chanuk, my introduction to his work was old boy. Um, and, uh, within old boy, you have a family drama, you have action, you have thriller, you have horror, you have 
sexuality. And so I feel like I got permission from the filmmakers I started to consume in film school to make a film that couldn't be easily pigeonholed. Uh, but also color-wise, like Mira and I, are, I saw a monsoon wedding, and I remember thinking, wow, like this, these are the colors I grew up with as a Sierra Leonean American. We would have parties, and people wore the fabrics and the colors and the textures. So even though color saturation is not something that is thought of as like part of horror, I knew that I would still wanted elements of my culture to bring into the horror paradigm. Um, and then once we started hiring our department heads, brilliant people, uh, Rena Yang, our DP, who's based here, who's from here. Oh, I know, I know. Japanese, from British. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Rena is a genius. Uh, I know. I've been admiring her work since her she, short films. She's brilliant. And I was so thankful that she chose us back because, so and she's the DP and then the production designer, Jonathan Guggenheim also brilliant, and Charlize Antoinette, our, our costume design lead. So all of us fought for the time to plan together, you know, and to really sit and talk about color palette. And Jonathan really leaned into a lagoon, aqua landscape because we're navigating Mamiwata, we're navigating this water motif. What does that mean? What does it look like in Amy and Adam's space versus Aisha's space? Amy and Adam's space is very sterile, clinical. Like they're they're pantomiming being cultured. They mm -hmm. have these images and these things that feel that like they should be warm, but they're not. Like it's lack lacking soul. And then Charlize really leaned into yellows and oranges when Aisha's in her community, warm colors because she's embraced by the warmth of her people. Um, so it was a conversation that we all had the time to talk about. And when you can tell when a filmmaker has had, has taken the time for people to communicate amongst departments because things feel cohesive on the screen as opposed to these different cogs in the machine working individually. Um, so it was really a collective effort of just an amazing team. And I'm really glad you brought up kind of the the water motif because I wanted to specifically ask you about that. Kind yeah. Of what does water represent in the world that you all collectively build in Nanny? Water is important to me, even outside of Nanny. It's just, you know how intuitively, innately there, there are elements that you have an affinity for and you, you don't know why yet or you don't understand why until maybe you get older and you start to pursue knowledge. And I you know, getting older and re consuming knowledge, I realized how prevalent water what has been in the African diaspora in terms of when the ships came and, you know, whisked us from the continent or from our different lands to the Americas and to these different European nations, what, people would literally fling themselves over the ship, throw themselves into the water and commit suicide rather than be enslaved, you know? And some people were thrown overboard, whether they were sick slaves or just, we have a really convoluted history with water. And so I remember reading about some fable about the people who jumped into the water instead of being enslaved, created this whole marine kingdom you know, of free black people at the bottom of the sea. So things like that are things that I thought about. Water represents birth, rebirth, destruction, renewal. It's just such a complicated element. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of the elements that takes up the majority of earth. And it's a space that we still don't understand. We don't know the depths. We can't go there for a reason. And that's probably what is saving the depths of the ocean is that humans literally cannot go and destroy it. So it's just, it's interesting. It's compelling to me. And I wanted to ask you as well, perhaps this is a slightly loaded question because it's, it's your film, but one of the things I personally love about horror films is how everybody can take away something to be afraid of mm -hmm. without even knowing what they're going into, that something will stick. And I wonder kind of from your perspective, you know, when you're making this film, when you were writing it, kind of what for you is the true horror of Nanny? That's a good question. And you said, you said the answer in the question that I would agree with is that everyone, the beauty of elevated horror, even, even, um, the opposite, whatever the opposite of elevated horror is, you can always interpret the monster 
based on your life, whether the monster is grief or trauma or a physical manifestation of someone. Um, the beauty of horror is that it's open to interpretation. And for characters like Aisha, there are so many forces of horror in an African woman's life coming to a country like America or any country, any, any white supremacist settler nation for an African woman. I think African women, black women are some of the most vulnerable, vulnerable people on earth because of the intersection of all of these elements that, that we are oppressed by womanhood, blackness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so for someone like Aisha, the horror is almost everywhere, whether she's being sexualized, whether she's being underpaid. Um, it's really complicated, really having agency as a black woman. But the beauty of black womanhood is that we've nurtured our own communities. We lift each other up. We find our spaces. We find our tribes. And I never want to create a black woman protagonist who is powerless or a victim of her circumstances because I just know too many powerful black women. Um, so for me that the navigating horror with a black woman protagonist is kind of tricky because you, uh, she has to be a final girl for me. She has to survive this. She has to be the last person standing. I never want to create a black woman in a world in my cinematic worlds where she's at the end, she's, you know, bloodied and battered and beaten. Um, so it's fitting that I would have an interview with, with final girl, because <laughs> it's really important for me to have final yes. girls at the end of my films. And I wanted to kind of, as a follow up to what you've just been talking about, kind of what is the cinematic world that you've been building? And I, I want to put two questions in there. Do you see yourself, um, working in the genre space for, you know, for your next projects, projects that you might be working on and kind of what does that, um, cinematic world look like for you? I definitely want to stay in genre. And luckily the next couple of projects that I'm lining up are still within the horror genre. Uh, so that's the good news. And I'm interested in navigating body horror. Mm. You know, I'm interested. <laughs> I got very excited. Got I couldn't very hide excited. it. <laughs> And I never thought I, you know, I, I've enjoyed some, like, I love Cronenberg's work. I think, uh, uh, Coralie Farago, what's her name? Is that, did I say her name uh, properly? Revenge. Revenge yeah. was a really, I loved that film, you know, I, and I never thought that I would want to create a, a spe it's delicate with a black woman lead in a body horror because you never want to re-traumatize an audience that has already gone through so much in real life. But body horror is, is something that I'll be navigating next and also vamp vampires. So Which you worked on kind short, of explored already with your yeah, short film. Suicide by Sunlight. Yes. Yeah. So I, I I love creature creation. I love VFX. I love the process. I want to get better and better at navigating. It's a very, as you already know, male led, you know part of the process and sometimes you work with VFX teams where you're lucky if you see a single woman VFX artist you know most of the women that I've encountered in the VFX space so far are you know the assistants or the secretaries or and so it's it's a different language with with a totally different team that is not only very male but is also very white and they don't always understand like skin tones and if you have something happening beneath the skin of someone my complexion. You can't use a skin tone that's too silvery. Otherwise, the skin will look ashen. Like, it's little nuances with color that go back to color. So I want to continue to expand my language in that realm and also expand my ability to communicate to teams like that. Um, so, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. And obviously, clearly very excited about both body horror and vampires. <laughs> Um, but I did, you know, going back to Nanny specifically, you kind of mentioned Aisha's employers and there's something about their space, yeah. but specifically about the use of artwork that's kind of signaled very, very clearly in the film for me, mm. both the, the painting that she sees in Malik's grandmother's house yeah. and, um, the photograph of the young activist with the flames behind mm -hmm. him in the film. And 
so deliberately, I think, spend so much time talking and referencing these images within the film. Now, what is their significance within the world of Nani? Of you know the images within yeah. images that we're seeing. Thank you for that. I, I I think I'm starting to realize that they scheduled the best meetings for last because they, <laughs> they know I'm they know I'm moody and I'm tired and it's someone who's actually going to ask questions that get me excited again. I um, appreciate that. <laughs> so. Yeah, like you said, it's imagery within imagery. You know, it's a microcosm of the film. Uh, the, photojournalism is intriguing to me. And most of the people who make money in photojournalism are white men. And they travel to these war zones with black and brown people. And they make pretty good money documenting pain and trauma and bringing it back in a in a really superficial way. And some of them are really affected by it. I, I remember going down a rabbit hole of a photojournalist who ultimately, I think, trigger warning, uh, took his own life as a result of everything he was consuming uh, and photographing and not being able to enter, enter like, uh, what's the word? Not being able to change the destiny of the people who ultimately died. The powerlessness of just yes. being an observant. yeah. And so I don't want to dehumanize these white men, but there is something to be said about a whole industry that thrives off of black and brown trauma. And so the, uh, Adam makes pretty good money documenting this stuff and bringing it back. And to have this woman in your own home who wants to get justifiable pay and sees a reflection of herself in his office every day. I think there are just layers of commentary there. Mm. And there's, a, I mean, there's quite a few questions that I would love to ask you um, that are so specific to the film. I wanted to ask you specifically about Aisha and the isolation and the longing that she goes through throughout the film. Mm. Just so, I think for me, it was the emotional mm. arc of the film. But then I wanted to specifically ask you about the choice of lessening that with a love story in the middle of a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These questions are so good, Anna. <laughs> Anna. I almost called you in. Um, I, you know, I just know what I grew up watching. Like when you when we're young, we're a lot more forgiving. Everything is new. Everything is, is exciting. And the things that you were able to lose yourself in as an adult, you can no longer overlook, you know. And I, I just realized at some point I had to create the thing I wanted to see. Like I, I hate, I got, I'm fatigued of seeing black women characters who are solely existing in a piece to supplement white people's character arcs. That's one. And two, once a black woman is centered, She's loveless, you know, she's made sexless and loveless. Um, and then three, it's like, you don't want, even though horror is inherently about conflict and trauma, you still don't want to relentlessly traumatize your black. Like, I'm just very sensitive to all of these things. So I was like, you know, I got permission from Park Chanuk and Lynn Ramsey and the people I mentioned, Claire Denis, to just give my character what I want her to have within one film. Um, so I felt like she deserved that, that joy. And in the way that it's framed as well, I'm not gonna, I said the same thing to Anna before I was worried. Yeah. That he was that's bad good. news. <laughs> I like that. Everybody says that. And I love that because I never want the audience to get complacent. It, I mean, I was just, have been primed to expect the worst from men in general, same. but also from men in horror same. movies. Same. <laughs> same. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you as well about um, Aisha's relationship to the magic and the folklore that you've alluded to, and then um, you know clearly informed your research in writing this. Um, can you talk a little bit about the choice of making her your central character, someone who doesn't believe, but also is a non-believer from a place of respect, which yeah. I found to be quite a curious choice that she sees it. She's experiencing yeah. things that are otherworldly and scary. Yeah. 
But at no point does she go through the motions that we see a lot in horror films of, oh, I'm going to go to a big old book and find out what and this means. <laughs> listen, I, you know what? I will admit in earlier drafts, I was, you know, it, no, there's no pure, there's no film that is so, it's very rare to make a film where no one else has a say in the output, in the product. It's other people's money, unless mm -hmm. you're independently wealthy and your father can finance your film or your mom can finance your film. That's very rare. So part of the journey was meeting our producing partners where they were. Like, mm -hmm. how can we educate the audience? And I never, it's, it's a tricky balance because I know that a lot of people don't know a lot about Anansi and Mami Wata. But at the same time, I don't like to spoon feed the audience. So I did have early drafts where it was like, okay, maybe she, not literally goes to a library, <laughs> but something like that. Yeah. And then it was just like, uh, this is not organic to mm. me or this story. Um, and the reality is, uh, I'm sure Anna, Anna talked about this with you, but a lot of West Africans don't have reverence for, like they see this as uh, sacros like blasphemous, tapping into the spirits and talking about Mami Wata and Anasi because of colonialism, because of how much Christianity has penetrated the continent. Some people feel like this is really like satanic. And I, I know when it starts streaming that there's going to be some pushback from some Africans that are like, how dare she, you know, which is interesting, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, but for Aisha, I think she's somewhere in the middle where she's been indoctrinated to believe that this stuff is wrong or it's mumbo jumbo, like somebody said in an actual review, that this was supernatural mumbo jumbo. Seriously. <laughs> I haven't read any reviews because I never read reviews before I actually watched I should the probably film. stop mentioning this in interviews so this dude doesn't think he's <laughs> as important. But I just find it so funny and ridiculous that someone like him has a platform because it's like... He, but he's mimicking something that reinforces the reason why I make films, mm -hmm. you know, because we need other lenses and other POVs to counter some of the stuff that people have been conditioned to believe. So Aisha's, you know, she's grappling with that conditioning, mm. but she's also grappling with what she can see and feel and taste with her own body. Um, and I'm always intrigued by the spiritual realm intersecting with realism because the writers at Toni Morrison is one of my favorite writers and she's constantly talking about the magic being very real and the ways that as we grow up, we're conditioned to move away from that very real magic. So those are some of the things that I was thinking about with Aisha. And I'm wondering now, kind of, and I was wondering throughout the film, because I've also been conditioned to expect that a super, any supernatural element in a horror film is bad. Is bad. Yeah. Is the supernatural in Nanny inherently bad? No, of course not. And you know what? It's what I love about pre-colonialists. I don't even want to frame it like that. What I love about African folklore and, and spiritualism is that it's always been complicated. It's always been not black and white or white, but somewhere in the middle. Every 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 god, every spiritual representative has been a figure that represents the gray area. How do you fight the ma How do you dismantle the master's house? You burn it down. It's the only way. You have to burn it down and start from scratch. And so that's why I love figures like Anansi because, which I, I find it interesting that he's consistently he in all of the literature <laughs> because he's, he's chaotic. He's a chaos agent, you know? And I, I don't know what they're saying about you know, male energy by calling him a he, but he definitely is complicated. And I love chaos trickster figures because they challenge us to step outside of the confines of the societies that we're navigating and really imagine a different, a different reality. And just to wrap up, because I think I've taken up enough of your time. This is what happens when <laughs> I'm with an actual engaged, smart, brilliant person. I did want to ask you kind of to, to wrap up. Um, it is momentous that Nanny won the Grand Jury Prize yeah. at Sundance for multiple reasons. Right. But I think it's really interesting what it says about the place of horror 
in film culture at the moment. And I wanted to ask you your thoughts about, you know, perhaps now with some distance, kind of, do you think, what do you think it says about where horror is in how we perceive kind of and how we engage with film at the moment? It's exciting. I, I love, I'll even mention someone like Ari Aster, you know, like I, it's exciting to see Babadook, Jennifer Kent. It's exciting to see the ways that horror is being used to discuss family, generational trauma, grief, loss, very universal feelings that we all have, no matter how you couch it or what protagonist you have. Um, and it's not, a, I don't think it's a coincidence that there is an, a renewed interest in the genre as we navigate multiple pandemics, you know, um, uh, empires falling apart before our eyes, the changing of the shift in power, you know, social media taking on a life of its own, once marginalized people having a voice on platforms like social media. It's just, there, there's a lot, climate disaster, like I could keep going. There's a lot that feels like it's is happening simultaneously that is really dark, but also pointing to a future that inherently has to be better. And so I am, I am revolutionarily optimistic. I am cautiously optimistic, but I, there's resistance in, in the optimism that I have about something better being on the other side of this, but not, but, and horror is a, is a way that we are actively making sense of what we're navigating in real time. So I'm, I'm excited that a genre that I love that I think is so perfect for making social commentary, you know, has a renewed, uh, spotlight. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's such Anna. a beautiful note to end that on. That was so good. Thank you. That, this one is going to go, this one is going to be, <laughs> when I'm 60, people are going to be digging this one back up. I miss you. Love mommy. Say bye-bye. Hi, mommy. And it's such a pleasure to meet you. And congratulations on this film, which, you know, you're in almost every single frame of. Mm, yeah. Um, so I wanted to start with the beginning and ask you, what do you remember your first impressions of the script when you first read Nanny? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Um, by the time I got Nanny, the industry that I'm in had been really a buzz about it for about a year. Everyone was talking about this script. It was on the blacklist, which is yes. like this, you know that? Yeah. And so I was just really excited that it finally reached my inbox and I could read it. And I read it and I got it. I was like, this is why everyone has been obsessed with this script. Um, and I was moved by it. I was... Um, it made me very emotional because the story of Aisha is very parallel. It's very similar to my mother's story. Mm -hmm. She's an immigrant mm -hmm. and she brought me to the States when I was five years old. Um, and she did it for the same reasons Aisha is doing this incredibly difficult thing and leaving her son, which is to build a better life for her son and for herself because mm -hmm. there wasn't much for her there either. Um, so for me, it was just so deeply personal and, um, and I was really excited about the prospect of possibly playing this role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it really means so long hearing you say that because I'm a child of immigrants too. My parents mm -hmm. also emigrated and brought me over. High five. Immigrant children. Yes. We did good. We're doing all right, <laughs> you know? Also moved over when I was about five or six mm. from uh, a country that no longer exists and to Spain. So I wanted to kind of ask you, and perhaps you've already answered it, but if you could deepen it a little bit about your entry point into Aisha, kind of how did you, when you knew you had the role, how did you approach making her your own, kind of building your performance? Mm, mm. <sighs> well, yes, my mother... My mother was a huge inspiration and not only an immigrant, not only a mother, but mm -hmm. also a domestic worker and also mm -hmm. specifically a nanny. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of experience of Aisha through my mom. Mm -hmm. um, 
And outside of that, because Aisha obviously isn't exactly my mother, um, I just did the character work that I always do for any role. Mm -hmm. I wrote a very extensive biography for Aisha. Um, I, um, I meditated on a lot of what it means to be a mother. I'm not a mother, um, but I've been loved very wonderfully by a very wonderful woman. Um, and my mother's love for me and for my brother, it's very potent. Like it's very, it's always like I can feel it. She cares so much and she holds so much hope and, and joy um, in herself for us. And so I thought about that. I thought about what that must feel like to kind of have your heart living outside of you and in the world. And, um, but yeah, I also, one thing that I did for this film that I haven't done for any other project is I created like a, um, I bought these cork boards and I bought a bunch of cards. Mm -hmm. What are these called? Flashcards? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I bought pink ones and blue ones. And mm -hmm. the pink ones, I wrote out, I wrote out each and every scene of the film mm -hmm. and I put them all up in sequential order. Yes. Um, but the scenes where Aisha's experiencing psychosis or neurosis or mm -hmm. madness or insanity, mm -hmm. um, I put in blue. Mm -hmm. And that just helped me, for one, look at all the cork boards and kind of see the ascension that mm -hmm. she has into madness. And also because we're filming out of sequence, every day I could look at, okay, we're doing scene 4, 19, 64, and uh, 17. And so I could see where Aisha is in each of those mm -hmm. places and see how much um, madness or stress or confusion she's just come from. Mm -hmm. And that kind of informed my performance in that scene. So just so that it was consistent in the edit. Like an emotional map for yourself. Like an emotional map. Exactly. And I want to ask you about this, you know, the, the madness or the psychosis or the anxiety that mm -hmm. Aisha goes through the film which I felt so viscerally, not just through the direction, but also through your performance. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the the horror of Nanny? Um, kind of how did you wrap your head around the, you know, performing these almost magical, but also very anxiety-inducing and written scenes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, ever since reading it, the true horror of Aisha is contending with the um, ache of missing her son and the mental um, torment of, did I make the right decision? Is he okay? Will he resent me forever? What will life be like here? Like just the level of confusion and anxiety and um, again, just ache of missing her child to me was the heart of the horror. And so everything that came, like every, um, everything else came from there. So all of the actual horror elements that are very obviously horrific and scary and, and all those things came from a place of just this mental, um, kind of torment an emotional torment of, did I make the right decision? Is he going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? Is this the right thing? How am I going to last here without him? Um, everything that I did came from that place. Like every moment of horror was informed from that, from that place. Mm. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about your own personal relationship with horror films? Like, is this a genre that you gravitate towards or is this something that you hold at arm's bay but then end up working in horror films it's actually something i hold at arm's bay it's not something um that i've always been necessarily um attracted to though i do enjoy going to the theater with friends and watching a horror film like there's just something about like all the feels that it gives you all the jumps all the you know it's a fun social thing to experience to me but i I think horror is attracted to me. This is my fourth <laughs> horror project and it, they just keep casting me in this. I don't know if it's something about who, I don't know, something about me that's um, presenting as someone <laughs> that exists in horror space, but apparently, um, and, I, and I'm glad for it, you know, I, I, it's the, the horror projects I have done have also been very intelligent, have also had very nuanced and complex and interesting characters. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here for it. 
but it's attracted to me horror it seems <laughs> like i don't know why <laughs> and and kind of on on the note of people enjoying it collectively mm. um have you had any or actually i should say what have been some of the most moving for you or exciting responses to nanny that you've seen since the film premiered uh, at Sundance and then obviously won the award and then has been, you know, ay, ay, ay. been shown what, around. Yeah. What are some of the most exciting responses? We hear all sorts of stuff. Really. Um, gosh, a lot of people um, really like to speak about the relationship of, of between Amy and Aisha um, and the experience of motherhood. Um, so that's been a really conversation, interesting conversation to have with people. Um, a lot of people are just really taken by the visual aspects of nanny the lighting the cinematography the shots um i hear people talk about the soundscapes like you know so there's just so many elements that i find people are gravitating towards um but ultimately what i'm hoping people take from the film is um a deeper empathy for these people that are living amongst us um, that are housekeepers or nannies or gardeners or immigrants that are coming and, and doing domestic work. And I hope that they gain a deeper appreciation for these people. These are very um, oftentimes intelligent, courageous people. It takes a lot of courage to leave your home country to try and dare to make a life somewhere else. And so I hope people gain a better, you know, a deeper um, empathy th towards these individuals. But yeah, it's it's been it's been a really fascinating, cool thing to see how people mm. respond to this film. I bet. I mean, I think it's one of the most fascinating things for me personally to see how people respond to horror films mm. at the time and later on. Yeah, and and on the no on that note, one of the things that I responded to a lot about Aisha is her sense of isolation mm. because of that weight that you were talking about that she's carrying throughout the entire film about things that happen later on. But I wanted to ask you, kind of, um, is that something that you were um very aware of? Is that something that you wanted to really? tap into the sense that even when she's around other people mm. be that you know her employers or or other people around her that she's always feels like she's by herself like she's carrying this enormous weight of every everyone else on her shoulders mm -hmm. wow that's such a gorgeous question um one of the first things that struck me after reading the script and thinking about this character was how incredibly lonely she must be. Um, and even, you know, there's a scene where Aisha talks to her friend Saleh in the braiding salon and you kind of get um, insight into her life back home. And there's a scene where she talks to um, Adam when they're at the cafe eating and she talks a bit about her life back home. Even back home, she was someone that didn't quite fit in either. She's very intelligent, very independent, very not wanting to um, go with the status quo and go with what was being given to her. And so she makes the decision to go le leave and try to build a better life, again, for her son, but also for herself. Um, and people I find that are like that in life, that are forward thinking, that are independent, that are intelligent at that level are often very lonely. Um, and on top of that kind of inherent loneliness of, of her, she moves to a foreign place, has no family. The person that she cares for the most is also ocean, an ocean away. And so um, it was one of the things, yeah, that really struck me was, was her incredible loneliness. Um, but there's also a lot of joy in her, right? And And she expresses that too in the film, which I think is beautiful. But yeah, it was one of the things I, I personally relate to. I know what it is to be alien, to be someplace that's new. Again, I'm an immigrant, so I get that experience and I get the loneliness that comes with that. Um, but yeah, that was something I, I thought about a lot. Yeah, but we don't play our loneliness, right? We we move through life and we... Yeah, which is, and I think there's 
you know, I think it's very difficult to write loneliness mm -hmm. for the screen, mm -hmm. which is why I wanted to ask you particularly about it, because I think it comes down a lot to performance mm. and choices you're making mm. in every scene, because it's right there in front of us, but mm. she's never going to say it. Right. She's never going to tell anyone, no matter how close she is to them. I'm, I feel lonely mm -hmm. or I'm isolated or this particular thing because mm -hmm. it just builds, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just yes. Yeah. It's so intelligent what you're saying. It's so, so true. It's felt. I think it comes, you know, the thing that I'm mentioning is, you know, it's not going to be original. It's just felt through the film. Yeah. I definitely felt it. Yeah. I'm so glad because it was something I thought about a lot. And, you know, as an actor, though, you have to, you do, you think about the character, you do all the tedious scene work and all the stuff, and then you just have to let it go and you just really hope um, that it shows up. Mm. And I'm glad that it did. Thank you for that. That's also Nikki Yatu's directing and the way that I think she shot certain things. Um, even very, that very first, yeah, choices. very specific choices that you can really feel her isolation and her loneliness. Um, and yeah. I wanted to ask you, perhaps like jumping off from the loneliness into Aisha's relationship with magic, which mm -hmm. comes up literally a couple of scenes in a couple of scenes in the film. Mm -hmm. And I find that it, you know, whether and she's not a person who necessarily believes mm -hmm. in this stuff and kind of keeps it sort of at arm's length, mm -hmm. respects it, but mm -hmm. doesn't engage. Um, and I wanted to ask you kind of how do you think, you know, when stuff starts happening to her? Mm -hmm. Some of it feels terrifying and some of it also feels, um, because of the way it's shot, kind of beautiful mm. in a weird, eerie way. Mm. You know, what do you think her relationship with everything that's otherworldly is? I approached all of those elements of horror and supernatural experiences um, from Aisha's mindset, which I just decided was a very grounded and logical mindset. I think for the first several times these things are happening to her, she's um, chucking it up to being exhausted. And she's at this new job and she's exhausted and she's overworked and she's not thinking clearly. And so she's trying to um, kind of rationalize these experiences until it gets to a point where they become so real that she can't do that anymore. Um, and then you see her leaning on um, Kathleen's character. Um, I'm sorry, Leslie Uglum's character, Kathleen, to, to try to understand what is happening to her. And But yeah, I just try to approach it just from a very grounded, logical place because I think that's what Aisha would do. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what happens if you pop up in a pool and you see a mermaid and it's trying to... Like, how does one respond to that? And what does one chuck that to, you know? Mm. Um, and how did you, like, perhaps on the actual days, I know you, the film was shot kind of during the height of COVID restrictions yeah. and all of this. And I imagine it was particularly tough because of that. Mm -hmm. How um, how do you approach the actual you know, reality of shooting scenes, like some of the ones that we see here, you know, the underwater scenes, the getting kind of almost drowned in her own bed. Mm -hmm. um, they are nightmarish, but I wonder kind of what were they like for you to shoot those scenes of, of sheer terror and not knowing what's happening? Mm. Um, I had to just play the confusion of it. And in this film, it's confusion to the point of terror. And when you're really that confused about what's reality and what's not, that is a terrifying experience to really be out of one's own mind and not be able to discern anymore, I imagine is a terrifying thing. Um, and so I approached it that way, but the actual physical experience of shooting it was also, um, you know, challenging the pool we shot in YMCA in this pool that was there. The water was freezing. The space filled like chlorine. It was super hot. Everyone was just really trying to get through it. Um, but yeah, there were certainly like logistical challenges in filming these, these moments. But emotionally, I, yeah, I just try to approach it as, um, I try to explore what is confusion and what does confusion look like in this moment. Um, and when you're experiencing 
these otherworldly experiences, that is a kind of confusion most of us will never know. Um, so I just try to imagine what that's like and play that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and I kind of, I know we're running out of time, so I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the lighter parts of the mm. of a very dark film. Yeah. Um, kind of how important was it or kind of did it feel important to lighten all the terror and the otherworldly with the very very um beautiful love story that also happens mm -hmm. again also magically mm -hmm. to aisha mm -hmm. in in this big you know this big bad city that is new york yeah that's something good can happen i could not have imagined how grateful that i could be for the that part of the story until we started filming because i was spending so much of my time all day every day again in this state of confusion and terror and loneliness and depression and aching and longing. And then the days that I would have a scene with Sin Qua and be able to shoot these scenes were like levity. It was so nice. And he became like whenever, you know, the night before um, each day I'd take a look at next day's schedule and I'm like, oh, tomorrow's a Malik day. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Oh my gosh, thank you, Lord. So much levity it gave me, mm -hmm. and it gives the film too. It's this unexpected, um, like you said, experience of joy and love and romance in this otherwise really dark uh, space. And so, I, Anna, was deeply grateful for that. <laughs> Aisha, um, deeply grateful for that too. Yeah. I was conditioned when he shows up. Yeah. I was conditioned by all the other horror films I've seen and yeah. know and love to expect the worst from yes. him. I was like, he's going to do something bad. Yes, to him. totally. Gonna be, he's going to be terrible. Totally. And then, you know, I don't think this is a spoiler. I think this is a good thing for yeah. people to know. He he is not a wrong one. Yes, yes, exactly. I know, I know. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, Anna, thank you so thank much you for so your much. time. I really appreciate your performance and your work in this film. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.